Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's actually kind of funny. Um, I've been kind of rearranging some stuff since then. And I, I, we have this uh, in our house we have, I mean, it's like a lot of the houses in Phoenix here where there's yeah. like these big cement privacy walls that go around. And we have this really nice shed kind of in the back corner of that. Oh, and nice. I decided to clean it out and kind of move the podcast and stuff in there, but I haven't gotten around to making it climate controlled yet. So right now it's just miserable to be out there. So I've been doing a lot of the recording here, but it has great sound in there and the, yeah. the lighting and stuff is perfect and it's far enough removed from the house. I don't, my, my wife and I both work from home for the most part. Yeah. So I don't bother her as much uh, rambling on about low carb diets and endurance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a nice spot when it's not 110 degrees outside, but uh, yeah, your weather um, is brutal. I, I have a client. He just said, Oh, I just got back from Phoenix. He had a bike fit with uh, some company and he said, yeah, it was 110. And he, just was, mm-hmm. he's, he lives in San Diego. He says it was rather scorching. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I dream of San Diego this time of year, but we're we're pretty fortunate in the in the winter months. And I grew up in the Midwest, so like mm. I just loathe the twenty below wind chill, snowing outside when you got a big training thing on the schedule. Yeah, so, the Midwest is harsh. I had a, a roommate from college that was just out here, and they they've lived in Incline, which is in uh, you know Sierras and. Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of snow, those specific storms come in. And he said, I just got so tired. He's just retired uh, a couple of years ago. And they've gone down to Palm Desert. Uh, and they said, well, we kind of extended our time with COVID. And he said, you know, the winters down there are pretty darn nice. And he said, he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't miss that snow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, when I lived in, in like Sacramento, actually, this is something I was going to ask you about because I, I think you grew up in Davis, right? Yeah, I'm I did. Not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, I lived in Davis for about a year and then Sacramento for about a year, about maybe a year and a half each of those before moving to Phoenix. And uh, I would make that drive over to Reno every once in a while. And right. go, I, I remember I found out about like chain tire regulations and yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you yeah. Know, it, it, Midwest, they don't do that. You just plow through it. Huh? No, no, there's not enough hills in the Midwest. You don't got to worry about that. I, I remember thinking, like, why are these people so worried about snow? They're really soft out here. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, there's like, there's like three mile descents at like eight to twelve percent grade. Like, you right. can't just scoot down those when they're switched back and back and forth. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thankfully, I, I learned the protocol before making too big of a mistake. And mm. um, they don't let you make too many mistakes, though. They'll they'll stop you and pull you out if you're not if you're not right. Yes, they do. do. Cool. Um, I threw us up. We're recording now, so like uh, uh, we can we can hop right into this and uh, and kind of get you get your story here. I know um, I'm excited, obviously, to have you on the show. Our listener base is kind of like pretty uh, wide ranging. We've just we've covered a lot of different topics between like the endurance stuff from my side. Uh, uh, my co-host historically, Dr. Sean Baker, he's taking a break from the podcast right now because he's just had so much going on with all his stuff, his individual stuff that, uh, he would, you know, bring in a lot of folks that were kind of strength-based athletes. I don't know how much you know about Sean, if anything, but I mean, he's like literally twice as big as me. He does explosive sports stuff. Oh, does he? Wow. Yeah. He was a rugby, rugby player. Like Ah. he did, uh, Highland games, all sorts of stuff. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So it was kind of a polarizing tandem we had in between the the extreme endurance and the the, the short explosive stuff so like we got oh, a lot of it's, good. it's a good it's a good mix yeah yeah no it was it was it was, it was fun uh co-hosting with him but right now i'm going i'm going solo so we can dive a little deeper into endurance perhaps but uh, good um, well, whatever i mean I, yeah I, I, i'm real big on the strength train always have been for mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when I was racing, I did a lot of it. I came from a swimming and water polo background, water polo, you know, those guys are 
big behemoths now, but so I had to be strong for that. And, but I kept it up all the way through my uh, triathlon career. And, uh, and I'm a big advocate of it. A lot of the athletes that I've coached and, and a few of them that have gone on to do well, Chrissy Wellington, who was a world champion and Craig Alexander, uh, they were really asymmetrical when I first, they, they were already good when I got them and I didn't want to muck them up, but uh, they were pretty focused on their strength training and mobility training, just keeping the range of motion, their shoulders and their thoracic spine and hips. And so, mm -hmm. yeah. But has, has strength training been a pretty standard part of triathlon for a while? Or is that something that that community kind of had to learn over, over the years? Uh, well, I've been involved with it for a long time. Um, it's something that I brought in. So when people would ask me, they'd say, well, what do you think about strength training? But it, it certainly is the first thing that's given up. If, if people want to go out and ride the bike longer, that's what they'll do. And, uh, you know, to a fault, a lot of people do, you know, sort of steady pace, all the same speed over distance type training. And it really affects your uh, unfortunately it affects your physiology and, and you know this well they just don't get any faster mm -hmm. so they get in a race and you know they're not they're not doing a you know race across america it's there's a finite set amount of time you got to be fast mm -hmm. so uh, you know i i've always been a big advocate when people have asked me a yes 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 and what should we do and i you know i can give them all the science and and research and then you know find out their strengths and weaknesses and here's your program but for most of the triathletes it's it's really not um innate that this is really paramount that they should be doing strength training it's something that oh i heard that from dave scott but i don't really want to do that <laughs> <laughs> and i may add it and a lot of people do it in their off season which which I think is fine, but I, where they really need it and where they're more vulnerable is when they become fitter and quite often their volume is greater and then they've now curtailed it or dramatically reduced it or brought it to zero. And then all of a sudden they go into the race and they've got these little niggling injuries and, and they're just not quite as strong. Mm -hmm. So I, I've seen the, the, the cycle and triathlon a lot where, and I'm, I'm sure it's prevalent in, in, in distance running as well. Uh, and I've worked with distance, uh, some distance runners. You know, people get in good shape during the springtime. And then all of a sudden they think, well, I got to go faster. I, I've got to do more volume. And all of a sudden they kind of go up to this plateau where their fitness is really solid. They're doing well in the early season races, but they're not shining at the end. because. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think a big part of that is, is doing the strength training. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always been a fan of strength training too. I think that the endurance running world has just come around a lot more in the last maybe decade or so than they, they would when I first got into running. But yeah, it's like, it was mindset that and you're going gonna to get too big and you're going to have to carry all that extra muscle around when you're trying, trying to, to run these long races. And then, um, then when it started to get a little more it's like you'd go and you'd see the runners they'd be in like one corner of the gym and they'd just be doing you know like perhaps low low weight type stuff and um, yeah and that's where i think it's like that's where i think it really confuses people in the endurance world is like you know you actually want to be kind of be doing some of those more like kind of core movements and and try to actually add some weight to it relative to what you can you can do yourself but right. a lot of my a lot of my stuff is like early in the season, maybe up to 10 reps. But by the end, like when I'm in like kind of peak season or even doing some races, I'm down to like pretty low reps under five for the yeah. most part. I think yeah. you get that base or that foundation in place and then you just kind of have to keep triggering it every once in a while. And it, it's amazing what you can do with a little bit of time if you just stay consistent with it. Yeah, it's magic. Well, I'm glad you're a big advocate of it as well. And, and a, a lot of the, a lot of endurance people, not to be redundant on your comment, but they you know, they end up doing too many reps. They don't take the, the exercises to hardy fatigue. And I use those two words a lot because there's a, uh, there's a great return on a, a compound called a myokine. These myokines go up a lot and, and you're, you're also stimulating your fast, predominantly your fast twitch 2A fibers for endurance people because those kick in. So I always tell them, you know, just don't sit in front of the mirror with a two pound dumbbell doing bicep <laughs> curls, you know, for an hour. I said, you're better off just having dinner. I said, you know, yeah. <laughs> put those down and, you know, let, let's put a little bit of load on there. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome that you're doing that. I, yeah, I remember 
reading your uh, bio before we you did your 12 hour world record run on the treadmill and he said oh yeah i like doing a lot of you know top end stuff i do a lot of uh, lactate threshold type workouts and you know i thought you know good for all those endurance guys that just think more is better and uh you know i i think combine that with your strength training obviously you've had great results yeah you know i think it gets interesting especially when you kind of get into like iron man triathlon and then like 100 mile races where like you are going to be out there for the entire day right. Right. and it it can get easy to get sucked into that like oh i need to be spending five six hours you know out in the mountains or the trails or wherever yeah, exactly uh on a regular basis and i think there's a, definitely a place for that but uh you can also be pretty strategic with it and that's one thing i learned throughout my career, I think from an ultra running standpoint, when I got into it, the reason I got into it, cause I love that long run. Like that's what yeah. I wanted to do. I right, was, right. You know, do this every other day. And, yeah. <laughs> and eventually you learn that that doesn't work as that, all that well for, for the long haul. And there's times a year where it's better to go short and fast and yeah. pick some weights up every once in a while. And, yeah. and um, you know, one of the questions I wanted to actually ask you about that type of stuff was with like, kind of like the programming side of things with, with us, especially like Ironman, do you guys typically address like certain systems like kind of exclusively, or do you do more of like a blended approach where you're doing like VO two max type workouts, lactic threshold workouts, aerobic threshold stuff, all kind of in the same uh, block of training? Uh, yeah. Well, I think first off, when people try to put the whole uh, kitchen sink in, in, you know, one training program and then all of a sudden they're doing lactate threshold workouts and anaerobic endurance and VO2 workouts and over distance, you're, you're going to wear yourself down. So I have what I call micro cycles or periodization with people are familiar with that word. Uh, I'll use one of the examples with, uh, you know, a couple of the world champions, Craig Alexander and, and Chrissy, I always thought it was paramount before they're going into their biggest race of the year, which happened to be the world championships, Ironman Kona. And I always wanted to be at their kind of their, their peak strength. So we, we always did a VO2 block, very specific for about six or seven weeks. And we would do that all, uh, on the uh, bike and also the swim. And it'd be one specific session, VO2 session for the bike, one on the, on the swim leading into Ironman racing. It wasn't, oh, I need to do more volume as we're coming in because the aerobic machinery was fine. You know, the blood volume is fine, capillary density is fine, but the mitochondria are really stimulated by, not to be too technical, but by doing the VO2 uh, train load. So they, getting to your question, they were really, it wasn't, you know, all types of train all in, at one time. Uh, I think that's not a good approach because the athletes get fit and the athlete will say, oh, I can do a lactate threshold workout, I can do a VO2 workout, I can do this speed work. And I said, no, you can't. <laughs> and you'll do your own because you're going to wear out, wear out. And it's going to be counterintuitive. So I do these micro cycles. And for example, the VO2 session at the end, I would do a sort of a sub threshold session during that same week. But if I did a lactate threshold and a VO2 and did them back to back, you know, I would have put them under the covers. They, you know, they would have been smashed, exhausted. And, and uh, the VO2 workouts themselves aren't very long, but it, as you know, uh, they're pretty darn uncomfortable. I and mean, if you're mm -hmm. doing uh, five times five minutes, which is kind of about the maximum, uh, total sum 25 minutes that I use that that was enough and, and we you know and I did this on the run as well with them not leading up to Ironman but we did VO2 blocks on the running as, as well during the year and mm -hmm. I usually had three VO2 blocks of each discipline throughout the year they really somewhere between six to about eight weeks each and at the end as I said we did a swim and a bike leading into Ironman VO2 specific, which I thought was, and have always thought that even when I was racing, that that was one of the key elements to making sure they're ready to go fast. Mm -hmm. It wasn't aerobic machinery. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I know uh, that's, it, it was always f funny to me because when I came out of college, you know, during the season, we would be doing a lot more blended stuff. But when you're racing like, you know, 5K to 10K, you kind of almost need to be touching a lot of different systems. Right. You get this little tight season of window. But since since kind of skewing weight over the longer stuff, like I'll I'll definitely like 
subgroup my cat or I'll subdivide my the different systems and kind of usually my general approach what I tell folks is I start with the least specific stuff early in the season and then I work towards the most specific stuff to what I'm going to do race wise so um, in most cases if I'm peaking for 100 miles that means like the vo2 max system stuff is assuming the aerobic base is already there which unless I get injured or something like that between between seasons I'll probably be at least fit enough to maintain most of that and then I'll move into like more lactic threshold focus kind of in that middle third. And then when I get to be like, say six to eight weeks out from the race, then I'll start just like kind of doubling down on a little bit more of the longer stuff or the intensities that are going to be specific to what I use on race day. And right. um, I haven't tried throwing back in the VO2 max at the back end though, but maybe that would be, be a useful thing to, to try out for the next go around. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, obviously you always want to look at the best of the best because they're doing a lot of things right. So you know, I can sit here and say, oh, gee, Zach got to do this. Well, you know, you're, you're pretty darn good, but I would, <laughs> I would pull, look at pull my hamstring on a VO2 max workout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think a lot of people that on the outside would say, well, Craig and Chrissy are world champions. And I would say that doesn't mean they're, they're at their pinnacle. Mm-hmm. I said, there's, there's always areas that they can prove and you better dissect their workout to figure out where their weaknesses are, maybe how you wiggle you know, the training blocks during this, during the seasons, you know, it it is good to combine at least two different energy systems. So there should be an anaerobic component that you're doing. And a lot of people uh, in their sort of off season or build season, even if they're doing everything, you know, pretty much aerobically, I have them interject these little higher intensity uh, segments. I call them anaerobic endurance and, you know, parallels good physiology, but typically between about 25 seconds to around 50 seconds on the run, sometimes up to two minutes as they get more fit on a bike, you can stand up, sit down, you can slide fore and aft on your seat and you have more variability on, on the bike and the swimming allows you a little more recovery, but kind of the sweet spot to start people like in the off season, I, I have them do 25 seconds to 50 second repeats. And, and when they start off, I just say, well, don't slam these do them as, a, you know, start off quick and do them as a buildup. Uh, you know, you don't want to pull your hamstring or, you know, you're, you don't want your kidney to, is to fall out. So, uh, but, but I think it's kind of, kind of paramount that, uh, that, you know, people, uh, athletes look at stimulating those fast twitch fibers, not just wait for, oh, I'm, now I'm going to run fast or now I'm going to swim fast. And it's something that you, you, you get a lot of, um, growth by doing a, a real nominal amount of higher, faster segments. And this, what I, again, what I call anaerobic endurance, you know, is really great data. If you've never done it, about four to eight minutes of the sum of this you know, total time, you can start reaping the benefits. But for, you know, athletes that have been doing it, I typically work in about a 10 to 20 to 24 minutes of total faster stuff within a workout. So let's say you're doing a two and a half hour run, you might throw in 15 minutes of faster uh, segments in there. And, and uh, you know, I've always found that the transition to the next phase uh, is easier and their, mm-hmm. you know, their muscles are primed to go a little bit faster. And, you know, as you know, the coordination when you run fast, it feels unwieldy if you haven't done it for a while. I think, yeah. like, wow, what are my arms doing? And, you know, your body just doesn't flow. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I guess like, uh, um, I may have sold myself a little short because I do uh, when I'm in that phase where I'm kind of building up the volume and race day intensity type stuff, uh, which for me for hundred miles, usually like aerobic threshold is kind of where that, like, I'm r- probably not going to be touching much above that, except unless I'm feeling really good at the end of the race and I'm kind of just bringing it home. But right. um, I'll do these, I'll do like either like 20 on 20 seconds on 40 seconds off type of setup or yeah. 30 on 30 off type of stuff as, Right. Um, in, in, in the, in the context that just to kind of keep a little of that turnover, a little bit of that strength where, right. you know, so I'm just like out there slogging around the entire time <laughs> every day. Yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah, it's good. I mean, a lot of people, when they do a set like that, you know, depending on the, the weather, the, you know, higher humidity, you obviously don't have it in your home base, nor do I have it in Boulder, but if you're doing this in Houston, uh, humidity is high. You know, a lot of people say, gee, I tried that 30 on 30 off and I did a few of them. 
but I needed more rest because I, you know, your heart rate lags behind it. Yeah. You, you feel the heat overload. You can't dissipate your heat. And I said, yeah, you're better off trying to hit the speed and give yourself just more recovery in between. So quite often in the early part of the year, if I prescribe this to athletes, I'll tell them to just get in 12 minutes of these faster bits and do them between 30 seconds and a minute or 50 seconds and spread them out within your workout. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're still stimulating them. They might do some a little bit after the warm up, midway and then towards the end. And, and they, you know, the sum of it uh, is by definition that they, sh you know, this will help their physiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've always liked looking at kind of volume with some of the lower or the higher intensity things kind of in the framework of like, well, how much volume did you do during the week and like how you cut it up? I find, especially when you're in a, a sport where it's kind of foreign to race day intensity, right. that like, you know, like if, if I try to do, and the, the numbers you mentioned, basically what I operate up, I'm always trying to build like maybe 20 to 30 minutes at the VO2 max type of stuff. Yeah. And uh, you know, whether someone cuts that into two workouts or, you know, has a little more recovery versus the one-on-one -on -one off type of framework is like, kind of a secondary thing like if we can make it work we'll try to do that but yeah. uh you know people oftentimes have other things to get to get done to or other issues that <laughs> pop up for, for whatever reason so right it's a, you give, give them a target that's manageable i think and they get that done and get yeah. most of the benefits and then if we want to fine-tune it from there we can but um cool yeah so i mean i think uh maybe uh we should just like since we've been going now for about 25 minutes, officially introduce you to the, to the crowd because uh, we've had a, we, we had a triathlete on um, a while back named uh, uh, Pete Jacobs and um, he won Kona, I believe in 2012. Yeah. 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 The reason we actually had him on was because after he won, he had a bunch of like digestive issues or autoimmune issues. And he yeah. was talking about going on like a zero carb, almost like animal based nutrition approach to clean up his, digestive and stuff like that but right. um the reason i mentioned that is just because like our listener base like if they if they paid into triathlon obviously they know who you are some of them probably do anyway but um just to give them an idea of kind of like where your uh where your history was within the sports and kind of where 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 your what's your claim to fame i guess is what i'm asking Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh my claim to fame zach well i'm a senior citizen now uh <laughs> I mean, I kind of fell into the sport and it didn't, really didn't have any definition. I, I mean, the first triathlon I did, it wasn't called triathlon. It was in San Francisco. The water's frigid. It's November. And I was uh, it, it just uh, finishing up college in 1976. And I took a group down to um, San Francisco. And I said, oh, we're going to do this event. And it was a start off with a bike ride. And then uh, and there was no no order, no police, no one at the intersections. It was just mayhem. It was, you know, chaos and do it at your, <laughs> do it how you can get through this thing. And then the, the second leg was about a four mile run. And then the last leg was to jump into the bay. And this was around our Thanksgiving time. The water was 56 or seven degrees, no wetsuits then. And, uh, I, I was honestly, I wasn't even going to do the run. I was having some foot trouble and I, I thought oh, I'm not going to do this. And I, and I kind of ran in college with swimming and water polo to stay fit and I enjoyed doing it. And I thought, you know, these multi sport events would be kind of cool. So anyway, that I jumped into that one. I, I had no idea where the three or four guys were ahead of me. I did decide to do the run and, and uh, jumped in that frigid water. And I, I, I remember seeing one guy who's hanging on to the, uh, the chain of this uh, boat, the, the anchor was it was uh, set down, you know, the bottom of the bay, and and this guy was wrapped around this thing, and I think he had a total body cramp, <laughs> and, and I thought, well, maybe I could help him, or just, you know, I'm competitive, so I, I kind of hollered at him like, you okay, but I didn't really listen for his answer, and so I ended up winning that race, and I thought, well, this is kind of fun. I hope more of these things, whatever they were, would pop up. 78 was the first year of Ironman. People took note of it, but it was really just, a, you know, it was really for oddballs and like no one really trained, no one had any idea. I did it in 80, the third year. And I went into it, you know, just with a blind optimism and said, you know, I'm just going to go as fast as I can. I don't think I'm, I'm not going to die on this. And, and I, you know, didn't know the competitors. There were 108 people that year. And 
uh, I bled from the swim. I never saw anyone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my debut, I won, but uh, you know, coming across the finish line, I think like a lot of athletes, when they do something first time and certainly in your realm, you're thinking, gee, I know I can go faster. You know, I wasted time here. I, you know, I want to do this again. So that, that was really the start 80 Ironman. And I, then I ended up winning, um, Winning the uh, Ironman uh, in 80 and 82, there was two races in 82. Uh, I was second in the first one. I won the second one. I won in 83, 84, 86, 87. I was second in 89. And then I had a five-year hiatus. And I came back when I was 40 uh, in 94. And I was second that year. And then my final one was 96. And I was fifth uh, when I was 42. So that's kind of my career. People know me as this, you know, Ironman guy, mm -hmm. but I did shorter races as well. And during this whole time, I, my background is in exercise physiology and I kept thinking, well, I'm not going to, there's no career in this. Uh, but I, you know, I started picking up sponsors. There was prize money. Uh, ironically in Ironman, the first four that I won, you know, they gave me a crummy looking t-shirt. Uh, there was no, <laughs> there was no money. Uh, one of the Islanders who lived there, I think he felt sorry for us. He said, you guys have got to put money up for this event. And, and so he did. Uh, and so on my fifth win in, in 1986, I got $8,000 and then 10 from the same guy winning again in 87. And I think it humiliated Ironman. They just said, we better put prize money. So the sports evolved a lot. You know, we have world, the, the world championships as it's been denoted in Hawaii is there every year, but the half Ironman or 70.3 has moved around the world. And, and there's over 130 events, obviously uh, having COVID everything is on hold mm -hmm. and we're all looking at 2021. So that's kind of my, that's a summary. I've been coaching athletes. I have a Dave Scott uh, tri club membership uh, program. I have runners and uh, mountain bikers and triathletes in it. And I'm a, you know, my thing is always, you know, give them as much information as I can. And, um, and I've always taken great pride in that. But at the same time, I've given people a lot of, uh, I'll say not misinformation at the time that, you know, the science was pretty compelling. And if you have closed ears to the other side of the science and certainly the low carb, high fat and, and keto side was there when I was racing. And it was good investigative science in that, but they weren't getting the notoriety and the intention that they have over certainly the last seven or eight years. So my diet has gone through lots of different iterations from eating as many carbohydrates as I can to being, you know, Mr. Keto. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Yeah. It's always interesting because I sometimes pay a little bit of attention to kind of the triathlon world because it's just seems like uh, that community has put a little more, time, energy, and money into kind of looking into like, well, what works and what doesn't work and how do we actually prove this versus the ultra running community who's kind of still like a little bit wild, wild west with like kind of what works and what doesn't work. And we've certainly learned a lot over the last 10 years, but there's still kind of a, enough disagreement or enough uncertainty where I don't know that there's necessarily a, a gold standard approach at the moment in a lot of cases, uh, certainly not for someone who's like kind of a middle of the packer. Um, maybe a little more clarity up in the front of the pack, but uh, it is always interesting to see like the nutritional stuff. And I know uh, I was even, I was even reading um, something, I think it was uh, with, with Mark Allen was talking about uh, what he was eating back in, in the, like, I think mid eighties, early nineties. And he was like, just maybe a little indifferent to just like, uh, being too hung up on like, I need to have a majority fat or a majority carbs and just kind of ate like a blend of it all, but focused on like real foods and just ended up eating like a pretty, what I would consider a decent balance. If you're just looking at it from like a quantity standpoint between fats and carbohydrates. And I thought like that was kind of interesting because like back then I would have imagined they were really like kind of just uh, sounding the horn for like 70% carbohydrate or something like that, or 80 in yeah. some cases maybe, but it is interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I think Mark, you know, maybe intuitively said I, I need more healthy fats and was eating more, uh, you know, on the other side of the pendulum, I was all about eating carbohydrates and 
eat almost any form of carbohydrate as well. I mean, I, I eat a package of rice cakes and rice cakes doesn't, it's not even rice, you know, it's been cooked and recooked and matted and pounded. And, you know, the, it's about as nutrition as, you know, wallboard. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I would, you know, I would eat these carbohydrates because, you know, I'm hungry, but it, you know, stimulating my system as a lot of athletes can get by with it. And that's the problem is that they say, Oh, you know, you won the Dave Scott, you won the world championships and, and you are very carbohydrate dependent. And, and my, and my response is yes, I was able to win those races, but the fluctuations that I had in training and really ultimately the inflammatory response, which you're very keenly aware of over time is building up. And when the day comes and maybe I'm an anomaly in some ways, cause I still exercise pretty darn hard, uh, without changing my diet, the, those inflammatory markers would be would be keenly elevated. And um, I was listening to a, a, a podcast by a, a woman in Australia who's uh, uh, she's an MD and I can't think of her name. And she put up a set of slides and she said, "Do you recognize these athletes?" And these were athletes kind of during my era and some a little bit older and some a little bit younger. All different sports: basketball players. Billie Jean King was one of them. Earl Monroe, basketball player and you know i just saying yeah i know them i know that i know i know that person and then she put up a tagline next to him and the tagline was uh four had or four or five had type 2 diabetes uh two or three had uh, alzheimer's they all had de de degenerative diseases which can't be attributed to diet and and i you know her point was i think a lot of athletes do get away with e eating like garbage cans and uh, not really recognizing that there's an, an inherent long-term destruction and eating uh, poorly, even though you're able to perform well. And so my response was, gee, I wish I, I wish I wasn't, didn't have such a closed door to low carb, high fat or ketogenic diet back when I was racing, I would have gone faster. You know, so, somewhat of an arrogant response, but I'm just, <laughs> sure. uh, but at this, at the same time, it was, it, there's a lot of validity to it because I, as you have been practicing, I have uh, as well for several years now, making changes in my diet. I, I mean, I tried vegan, I tried um, lacto-ovo vegetarian, which was, a, which was a good change. And then I uh, started adding cold water fish, which was a better change. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was looking at gee, I, I think I probably should eat uh, more olives. Those are good for me. <laughs> and maybe that, those hard cheese is fine. So, you know, that shift has come over time and it's, you know, I've let go of the blinders and said, you know, I, I've always, again, looked at the science and now I've looked at it in, in great detail. And that's what I share with the athletes as well. All right, folks, Optimal Carnivore reached out to support the show and let you know about a product they are very excited about. Optimal Carnivore recognized that organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, but can often be difficult to prepare conveniently and hard to get when eating out or traveling. For this reason, Optimal Carnivore has created grass-fed organ complex and bone marrow complex. They do this by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-dry the organs, and encapsulate them into a convenient bovine gelatin capsule. They chose New Zealand because it is a pure source, a pristine land with rich soil, lush greenery, and one of the cleanest environments on earth. The products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. The grass-fed organ complex is a unique blend of nine different organs, a powerful combination including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and intestines. The bone marrow complex contains the same components as a home-cooked bone broth, perfect for people who are traveling or who do not have the time to make bone broth. All the nutrients and substances that your body uses to build, repair, and maintain your bones, teeth, and connective tissues. In an effort to add even more to these benefits, Optimal Carnivore plants one tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So go visit www.amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Links and the promo code can be found in the show notes.
All right, now back to the show. And I think it's it's also interesting too, because like like you said, like you can get away with a lot of stuff earlier in your career, just as a young individual in general. But then when you're putting in, like in your case, probably twenty upwards of thirty hours of training in weeks, like there you got to get in the fuel. And sometimes like you just end up going to whatever's available or whatever's there. And and the, the way I kind of described it, a lot of folks is like, hey, because some people say, well, why is nobody doing this? Just kind of intuitively. And I'm like, well, blindfold yourself and walk into a grocery store and just randomly pick stuff off the shelf. And I bet you you're going to come out with at least a moderate carbohydrate diet. Right. Like, you, unless you just you stumble upon like the, the lard aisle or something. Yeah. Like that on accident. <laughs> exactly. That's hidden over there in the corner, but those right, carbs yeah. are everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Get some grains and cereal. You can tank up pretty fast. So, yeah, I, I always just wonder how much of, uh, especially when we're getting into these longer effort things like Ironman triathlon and 100 mile races and things like that, where you're burning a lot slower uh, than what someone would be doing in like a, just an all out marathon or something even shorter, right. than like Olympic distance stuff. Right. And, and I mean, I think that's maybe a little more of a gray area from what we're doing, but uh, at the same time, I think there's, there's at least room for, for some questions to be asked and, and, and hopefully eventually answered. But uh, um, yeah. And, and I think like that, that's the one thing that I'm always curious about too, is when you see these, like this life after sport, because you know, when you most, most of these sports are getting competitive now where like, you just aren't going to be like pushing into a normal career length at the end of your competitive, you're going to have probably a decade or two worth of like working kind of timeline left on, on your table when you finish your last competitive race. And it's like, well, what are you going to do with that rest of that time? And, you know, you don't want to just be a shell of yourself. You don't want to be wrecked. And, and if there's two ways to do something and one is going to kind of give you what you need when you're performing, but also put you in a position to be successful afterwards, it's like, I'm taking option two every time. And yeah. the more, the more stories I hear about, you know, folks ending up with like diabetes and things like that post-career is just makes me more happy that I've kind of put my stuff in a, or my nutritional approach in a little bit of a different category than the, than the norm. And, um, I do always wonder though, like with some of that stuff, but like how much of that is like you do in a 20, 30 hour training week and you're just pounding all the sports supplements and things like that. And anything refined is going to go down easy. And if you're eating that much, that might be what you turn to, especially if you're doing two or three workouts in a day. And it's like, then you stop doing that. It, did you kind of set yourself up in a position just to have like a lifestyle that is going to make it like damn near impossible to scale down to what your retirement energy demands are going to be and things like that. And that's why we see some of these, these athletes kind of like turn a really bad corner after they finish their competitive career. Yeah. There's a lot that turn a bad corner. I mean, I think the simple, an simple answer is in, in, in people that are skeptical and, and say, you know, I, I feel healthy. Look at me. I'm the same weight as I was in high school and I'm doing all this exercise and on and on and on. My simple response is you should have a complete blood panel done. And the basic blood panels that are certainly done in the States are, are really kind of uh, simplified right now. But you can add different markers on there that will really give you a, a real broad overview from, uh, you know, fatty acid levels to vitamin D3, which they've taken off right now. A lot of people are, are, are really low. Magnesium levels, serum magnesium, which you, which you can check. Uh, hemoglobin A1C, C-reactive protein. There's a whole slew of them. I, I send it out to people. And I was just actually with a uh, roommate of mine from college last night and had dinner. And, and he's my age. And he just said, and he's had some issues. And he, I said, well, I'll send you my blood panel, uh, you know, to take to your physician. And they're just outsourced to five five different companies around the U.S. that does the testing for this. And I said, then you're going to get a definitive look at whether or not you just have amazing adaptive physiology and great genes and you eat like a garbage can or you're eating what you think is a healthy diet, but it's not because you're going to get a lot of these markers that are going to show up. And even if you're on the upper extreme or on the lower end, depending on what you're looking at, uh, if someone, if a good physician or a medical person is looking at this, they're going to say, you know what, you, you're kind of on the road to prediabetes. Uh, your uh, fasting glucose levels are way too high. And that set point can creep up. So to your point, Zach, a lot of the athletes, 
they, you know, they're, they're pumping in foods all the time. And so their insulin levels are, are going up and they're developing this insulin resistance and leptin resistance and, and their blood glucose levels, fasting blood glucose, all of a sudden start creeping up five or six points. Well, they're already on their way to possibly bad problems. And when they're in their, done with their careers and maybe they're in their mid forties or their, their fifties or sixties or seventies or beyond, it's not too late, but you know, again, I tell people in their, in their early thirties or late twenties, take a look at it. We got nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, like at best, like you having these situations where even if you didn't do all the damage during your career and it was like the post career, like lack of like exercise right. coupled with the same diet, you're, you're, you kind of put yourself in a position where you're one bad decision away from, you know, becoming like full blown type two diabetic and like you, better being you're better off being a couple steps away from that so then if you do make a mistake or something like that you're not in a position where you're you're already kind of at the end of that at the end of that rope but right. uh, yeah it's it's interesting and you know when we i mentioned before when we had pete jacobs on it was it was just interesting one thing he said he's like the other thing that always gets overlooked with a lot of this stuff is they'll say like well we surveyed the you know the top finishers at kona or the top finishers at this competitive race and um, like every year, the top ones are the ones who are able to take in the most amount of carbohydrate. And I'm like, that's great. But like, you also have to look into things like, well, what is like the dropout rate? How much digestive issues were, were being like, were occurred during that. And you look at that side of the thing and we're seeing like, like a coin flips chance, basically that your race is going to get derailed by, by a digestive issue. So my, my, when I kind of just describe to a coaching client or someone who's interested, like you know, where, what direction do they want to go? You know, I, I tell them, I'm like, you know, if you're the type of person who can get away with eating 400 plus calories an hour during this event, and that's what you prefer to do, then like, you know, there's a chance you'll run a really, really good race, but you're also got like, I think it's like a 60% chance in ultra running for single day events that you're going to, you're going to develop some sort of stomach dis distress or digestive issue along the way too. So, you know, most people I'm working with, they're not, professional athletes. So they're going to do a couple of these in any meaningful way every year. And they're going to spend four plus months preparing for it. It's like, do you really want to flip that coin on four to six months worth of work? Uh, and, and, and hope that that 400th calorie at hour eight doesn't like send you run into the toilet or have you puking in the bush somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the person's like risk tolerance, I guess will depend a little bit on, or their past experience too. I always find the folks who've already experienced a lot of digestive issues are the ones that are the ones that are a little quicker to to look at a way to maybe minimize their inter-race fueling frequency and minimize the amount of like engineered fuels they're going to need to take in on a daily basis to even prepare their stomach to be able to tolerate that. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting because like I, I was talking to someone not too long ago and they said, well, you just got to train your gut. It's like, I got to train my gut to be able to eat 400 calories of sugar an hour. It's like, is that, then, then we're back to square one, like we were talking about before where uh, you know, is that a position I want to be putting myself in just from a health standpoint where I'm going out for a 60 minute easy run and taking in a sports drink because, uh, because it's just better to learn how to digest while I'm running or do I just yeah, defend muscle glycogen in a different way? Yeah, it's a real, yeah. You know, it's a, it, it's a gross mistake to, to look at nutrition that way. I mean, you're not really training, training your gut. Uh, and you know the top the top athletes, and I don't know anecdotally what you referred to, they're not taking in more carbohydrates. And the question I always ask athletes is, under like train conditions, what is your intake? So when you go out for a training run, using your example, let's say they're going out 90 minutes or two hours, what would you take? What would you have for your pre whatever that is? And that preloading is a real misnomer because. You know, as you know, they're going to have to burn through that glucose first before they start oxidizing fats. And a lot of times that does lead to GI distress because you're drawing water into your stomach and you've got this bolus of food. So typically the answer is, oh, I would never do that in training. But in a race, I think more is better. And I just said, you know, that's idiotic. Uh, because you, you really want to, you, you really want to try to minimize the intake for all the reasons that you, that you brought up and not try to be overzealous with the amount of food that you cram into your gut thinking that more is better. 
and, and I get this in with athletes, all levels, pros and uh, amateurs in triathlon. Oh, I'm going to do an Ironman, so I got to make sure that I'm eating X uh, each hour. Well, the the pace is slower for a lot of these people. They're going to go 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 hours in, in the race. Their their caloric burn, if we're looking at that, is pretty pretty minimal, and if they're not overloading themselves, you know, they've got liver glycogen and free fatty acids and protein catabolism and the amount of circulating blood sugar that they need is really small, but yet they can pollute themselves by pumping down a lot of, uh, a lot of calories early on. And in triathlon, a lot of them can get away with it on the bike because they're sitting there. But when they start the run, as you know, in your sport and you're working with or against gravity, all havoc can break loose you know? <laughs> and they're hitting every porta potty. So it's, you know, it can be a disastrous day. So less is generally better, even for someone who is carbohydrate adapted. You know, what do you normally do if you're thinking about going low carb, high fat? I mean, you know that, uh, or keto, that the caloric intake, just looking at calories, it's not a calorie for a calorie, but it's typically 30 to 80% less than when they were sugar dominated. So using your extreme example of 400 calories an hour, and I'm certainly I've heard this in, in, uh, in my sport, uh, they're going to be at 200. But if they're really oxidizing fast, they don't need 400. 400 is extreme. That's mm -hmm. awful. I, when I get athletes that say, oh, I'm taking in 300 calories an hour, I say, well, you better be going 35 miles an hour on the bike. And no one does <laughs> that for you know 112 miles. So s some of the notions about nutrition that athletes have and the misconceptions that they have is the same thing that parallels training. More volume is better. More food is better. Man, I'll throw those out real fast. <laughs> no and no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you have like a situation where like they look at like, like they, if you look at like a study that's done and it's like you, you can, you could glean from that, that more would be better on paper. But like more, that's kind of like in a, in a vacuum that leaves the digestive situation off the table, which, like, right. you know, obviously has an upper limit. I think, I think the position paper for ultra running single day set was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour is what they were, were mentioning. And, and, um, and that's still a lot. That's, it is, yeah. You know, that's 200 to 280 calories of carbohydrate doesn't count what do you have any other fat sources or protein sources with it and a lot of the stuff studies even with american college of sports medicine they'll say well buddy you know you should be taking in 90 grams of carbohydrates 360 calories and, and that's mm -hmm. printed throughout lots of papers like you know your body can handle 90 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour and again it comes back to the same thing we've been stating that is that what you're trying to do is to force feed yourself so that you have the capacity to not get gut issues or having to hit the porta potty or dive into the bushes or whatever, whatever. It, it hits lots of people. They have GI distress. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting topic. And I think like, you know, one thing that I found really interesting when I first started to, uh, you know, take on like a high fat, low carb approach was just right. kind of learning, you know, what do I do differently the week leading into a race, the night before the race, the morning of a race, and when I start a race. And the thing I found interesting was like, you know, like I'll have a little bit of carbohydrate the day before, um, but the morning of, you know, like everyone seems to be eating like cereals and like pancake type stuff, yeah. bread, cereals, that sort of stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, when you look at that, uh, that approach, you're just like, you're encouraging your body to go like, or to like, tap into those glycogen stores or burn through what you ate first and then start going, probably continuing down that route versus going a little lower carb or, or abstaining from carbs the morning of, and then not fueling on carbohydrates for that first like 45 to 60 minutes, especially yeah. if it's like a longer event, like what you or I were going to be doing. And right. then you've kind of turned that fat burning engine on, and then you can start bringing in a little bit of carbohydrate and defend muscle glycogen. But, yeah. um, you're in a position then where you don't need that 90 grams per hour in our sport. No, you, <laughs> no, you don't. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's, and, and we've all kind of filled with that. I mean, you've gone through it and made the change. And I, I you know, people ask me, what do I do now? Well, we're both involved with S fuels and what, one of the nice products that they have is that S fuels train, which mm -hmm. really has no calories and, and, and we're burning non-carbohydrates uh, sources 
you know, depending on your metabolism, anywhere between 30 minutes to up to two hours. So even the sessions that I do now, I, I don't eat in the morning. I don't have breakfast in the morning. Quite often, if I go out for a ride, which I did today, I have the S fuels train. That's all I, that's all I did. And then I swam afterwards. I just had S fuels train. So my first meal today was at around 1230. And because I, you know, I, I feel alert. My energy level is great. And I don't need that <laughs> crazy amount of calories we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, the train, the train in the life has been a cool product because I've been using it now since the beginning of this year. And I found, because I'm the same way, I wake up, I do my biggest workout usually relatively first thing in the morning. I usually give myself about 45 minutes to 60 minutes to kind of like wake up and, um, you know, get ready and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, using that instead of like a solid food is just, I love that. I love having an, I don't want to have like hunger pangs, but I, I, I want an empty stomach when I go right. out for a workout and a right. couple scoops of that has been useful. And if I do wake up and I'm hungry from like a big training block from the previous days, then that the S feels light bar is usually yeah. what I go to for that. And, right. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's interesting because when you, even when you look at just like carbo loading in general from its kind of original, original positioning where like, which I think, got maybe got bastardized when like kind of road marathoning kind of got popular Yeah, where part of the experience was this massive pasta feed the night before. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I always wondered, I was, felt like people, well, they, they kind of like carbo loaded before that day too. So they spent like <laughs> Thursday carbo loading, Friday carbo loading, they go to the pasta feed and carbo load even more. And, and it's like, you look at carbo loading strategy. It's like you actually abstain from carbohydrate for a few days before you did that bolus of carbohydrate, even in the context of the moderate to high carbohydrate athletes in a lot of cases. So no, no one was doing that first three, four days of the week. Though, <laughs> right. No, it was always the same thing in triathlon is that they'd have the pasta parties and it was just mountains of carbohydrates. And I, you know, even way back when, when I was a carbohydrate guy and I'd see these guys just gorging themselves and i said well they're gonna have a rough day (laughs) so it was sort of a prelude to uh, this just doesn't seem right and do you ever do this you know before your great training day and none of them load up all week and then load up the night before so yeah i mean i think we're kind of preaching the same thing over and over again and uh, you know i've told people with gi distress carbohydrate adapted uh, and maybe thinking about low carb, high fat, just to try to take in less and take in less at the outset of their race, as you just mentioned, or their, of their training day. And, they, and most of them feel better. Mm-hmm. It's a simple what, recipe. What are like target fueling ranges that a lot of your clients are, are you're using on Ironman days, like inter-race? Uh, well, you know, again, big difference. Cause I have athletes that are, that are carbohydrate dependent, adapted. And then I have some that are low carb, high fat that have fat oxidation rates, 1.2 to 1.5. And so they, they've been able to dramatically cut back from their carbohydrate days. And again, I had a lot that are carbohydrate dependent anywhere between about 175 to 300 calories per hour, predominantly carbohydrate, a little bit of protein uh, in that. And now, again, the low carb ones are at least half of that, if not even more. Uh, And so that first hour is very, very little. And then for each hour after that, it's, you know, it's less 50% than the numbers I just gave you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, if I find an athlete who tells me, particularly a male, that I need to have 300 calories an hour, uh, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> I got to talk them through, uh, you know, the logic on this and what they've done before. And I don't, it, you know, anecdotally, we, we kind of have to follow, well, I've done this before and therefore it's the right way. Uh, you know, there, there's some leverage on their side in saying that, but at the same time, you also want to present, you know, good science and, and, uh, reasonable facts on, on maybe diminishing that amount that they're taking in. So that, that's what I do. But uh, again, a lot of the carbohydrate athletes, 175 up to 250 is a really big range for guys. Women are about 25% less than that, less muscle mass, the low carb keto ones, are, and I, I have some that are between about 55 to 110 calories per hour. 
So I know, you know, Dan Plews, who, who has the Ironman age group record, he took in a lot of calories on that day that he did that. And, you know, I was kind of surprised because his fat oxidation rates were, were quite high. You were a good example when you broke your 12 hour record on the treadmill that your caloric intake and you use predominantly S fuels was pretty low. Yeah. I think on the treadmill I did like 15 or 16 packets of race plus. So yeah. I would, and you know, race plus is interesting too, because there are about a hundred calories in a packet of that. Right. But it is four, was it four grams of fat and four, three grams of protein and then like 15 or 16, depending on the flavor um, of carbohydrates. So it's, it's a little different. Like historically, I would usually like if I would have like a mixed drink, it would be almost all, if not all carbohydrate. Yeah. So like I like kind of having that blend. Anyway, you're relatively low. Uh, the, you know, the race plus is a cyclic dextrin so it's a it's absorbed without getting a huge insulin surge which is a which is a real asset for a lot of athletes because they're not relying as opposed to drinking a can of coca-cola uh you know it's quite a different um chemical composition of the two different types of you want to call them foods race plus or you know a can of coke and a lot of a lot of athletes gravitate to grabbing some simple sugar that really has a toxic level of, of sugar in it. And, and I, and anecdotally athletes have done well, well, I just grabbed for that Coke at the end. And I'm, you know, I'm always grateful that they get across the finish line without exploding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I think that there's, there's a reason it's at the end and not throughout. I've, I've exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, so. and it, it kind of goes back to like what you were saying before too. It's like you, you get folks who can get away with it, or at least they can in the time being. And I mean, I was kind of in that same boat. Like I started out doing your typical kind of whole food, high carbohydrate diet. And uh, I started my alternate career with that approach. And, you know, I was taking in three, 400 calories an hour for like 50 mile or 80 K races. Yeah. And I could tell at the end of those though, like I'm getting to the point where like, if I would, you know, even if, if I could run another hour, which in a lot of cases I couldn't, um, yeah. but if I could, like I wouldn't be able to stomach another hour worth of food. Yeah. So I knew when I was going to be doing a hundred milers at some point that I'd have to figure something out. And I mean, obviously I'd probably need a little less for a hundred miles just because the intensity is going to be lower. So I'll be yeah. better ratios. But, but once you start looking at like the fat oxidation rate stuff, I think my last test, I was like 1.56 grams per, yeah. um, for my peak fat oxidation and then when you, when you kind of scale into those numbers a little deeper at like a heart rate of 155, which for me is right about my aerobic threshold yeah. is uh, like about 85% fat and 15% yeah. carbohydrate. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 40 grams has always kind of been the ceiling that I felt like I've ever needed during a hundred miler where I'm going to float up to maybe 155 feet per minute. Uh, yeah. And that's even got a little bit of cushion in it probably. So yeah. Um, my, my thought was just like, essentially at 40 grams, if it goes in smooth, then so be it. If I have to go a little less, I can get away with a little less and, yeah. and, and kind of go from there. But yeah, Dan was on here a few weeks or a couple months ago and he was talking about his, I think he said he did 50 grams for that age group record. And, um, I can't remember what is his, ox his fat oxidation rate where his max one, I think it was maybe a little lower than mine. I but think it, it is lower than what I've seen him. Uh, print, but not much. I think it's about one point one point four. But okay. even on his, you know, on the run, and and this goes back to when I was racing, because there's a cumulative fatigue, and we're, and we're not having the output that you do on the swim nor the bike. Most people, and I've said even this with the world champions today, that they're not even running at their aerobic pace. And I realize there's a little bit of a heat load in like in Kona, for example, but Jan Ferdano, who holds the world record in Ironman right now, broke, broke it in, in 2019, his pace on the run is a pedestrian pace for him. So his energy demands are relatively low. He's obviously oxidizing fats. And, and when Dan did his age group, uh, record, you know, his, uh, and uh, you know, I guess I can say this not arrogantly, his runs relatively slow as Jan Ferdano's is, uh, comparatively in a, uh, for example, in a half marathon or 70.3, Jan's run legitimately 106. I saw him do this in South Africa off the bike, a 106 for 
13 miles is darn fast. Yeah. <laughs> and, but they're nowhere close to that uh, when they're, we're doing the Ironman distance and he's running 243. So, you know, it's relatively slow. And therefore, if, if coming back to Dan, he's taking in uh, 200 calories an hour of, of, of race plus on the run, I would be surprised. I never did when I did Ironman. I got to Ironman and didn't have the information that I have now. There was no need to take it in. And so, you know, on an hourly basis, I, uh, actual runtime with Mark and I ran an 89 he ran 238 and I ran 239, it was 240, 241 in the books. But even in that race, I, I was, I was taking in about 150 calories an hour on the run, not very much. Mm -hmm. So, and that was carbohydrate adapted, but I, I, my fat oxidation rates were still pretty darn high then. And, and, and I think again, you know, if there's a point to all this discussion is, you know, pe people really need to kind of pare back the volume that they're taking in. They'll probably find they're going to perform a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, I think it's interesting stuff. Um, I like to have, have options and things to choose from. And that's, that's ultimately like where I, where I think I, I land with a lot of this too. Is, uh, when I was teaching, one thing I knew I would never do is walk up to a student and tell them, here's the one way you have to do something and if you don't do this you're going to fail yeah. but I walk up and I say here's like two or three options to choose from and then you know here's the reason they want this one this one or this one and kind of walk them through that and then they're going to do what they want to do no matter what so at least you've kind of given them some options and some some reasons to do something and I feel like more people are kind of receptive to it with that but um yeah that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at right now yeah, well, it's hard to mandate, you know, we're not robots, so everyone has different physiology and you can't mandate that this is the exact protocol. It's just, you know, again, it parallels training. You can't give the same template that your competitors are doing and apply it to you or vice versa and reap the same results. So there's got to be a little bit of wiggling on that. But I always, you know, I always try to look at, what are the best doing? That doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but you better look at them. Mm -hmm. And then what does good science, you know, tell you on this and how has that evolved? So I think when people get become stagnant is they say, well, I've done this for the last 30 years. And I said, well, it's probably outdated. <laughs> Let's change it. Okay. And that's surely that, we've learned something between that. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there's a lot of, uh, old dogs out there during my era that are still doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, you made reference to the running community, the, the triathletes as a whole, and I'm not trying to put a flavor or a slant on them, have embraced technology. They've embraced technology on the bike. You know, their first, I rode the first aero bars that ever came out and then it gravitated to cycling. And when I first started riding, it was all about wool shorts. Well, wool shorts, wearing wool cycling shorts is uh, it's dreadful. You know, it's like sitting on a bucket of sand and uh, you know, it's just awful. And so the technology with fabrics changed. I mean, it didn't matter whether it was wheels or derailers or food, the evolution of it, you better look at it and you better get a, get information from great sources so that you can make a, make a more constructive decision on what I should apply to yourself. And so I, I have always kind of go through this whole wheel, as you alluded to with athletes, not trying to give them the overall historical perspective, but giving them the latest. So they do understand that there is evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, that's, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long because I know uh, you're a busy guy. So uh, that might be a, a good spot to, to end on, but uh, I do want to make sure that you can share with our listeners like where they can find you, social media, website, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm all over uh, just because out of necessity on uh, Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I, I always tell people, just Google my name. It sounds pretentious, but there's, a, there's an astronaut, uh, Dave Scott, and there's a uh, a black musician and and then it was a felon up there a while ago Dave Scott so I'm the other guy who did did triathlons that's a pretty easy way to to, to find me and and I have a I, I have an outreach to a lot of athletes I've been having this Dave Scott Tri Club but I like answering a lot of questions so I have people sending videos or on my I have a newsletter it's free 
and we have a pretty big distribution. It comes out twice a month, and we cover topics that we just discussed, Zach. So people can sign up for that. There's no, you know, I don't have all their credentials for the rest of their life. It, you know, to me, it's a good information piece, and they can ask me sp specific questions. I answer about 90% of them that come in from Achilles tendonitis, which just happened to a, to a woman in her 50s riding her mountain bike to plantar fasciitis to, uh, you know, I, I can't get overhead reach and front end on my freestyle stroke to, you know, I got GI troubles <laughs> when, I, when I exercise. So kind of a myriad of things, but I, I'll say I'm fairly easy to find. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, hopefully some of the listeners will go over and check out some of that stuff and um, they can they can learn from the six-time Ironman world champion, Dave Scott. Thanks a bunch for coming on. Oh, thank you, Zach. Enjoyed chatting with you. Went by quickly. Yeah, yeah. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.